Hey y'all, you're listening to a new episode of As Told by TA, the official podcast of, well, TA, duh, that's me. Hi, I'm your host, Taylor Ann, and this podcast was originally created as an avenue to tell my truth, forcing self-reflection in the process. Think journaling out loud mixed with setting the record straight. It's also become a real-life application of taking up space through being authentic and open regardless of the adversity I may be struggling with. I've learned the importance of using your voice and that even mine matters, and yours does too. Between advocacy, army life, motherhood, wife stuff, awkward situations, scary times, new beginnings, or surprise guest interviews, I hope each episode brings you some key takeaways of resiliency or inspiration or both, and maybe empower somebody to take up space too. Hey, 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 I'm back. This is part two of the season finale. And if you haven't already listened to episode 16, the season finale is part one, I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. You're gonna be a little lost. So I definitely recommend stopping this and listening to that one first, or you're gonna be missing some key details that help to unfold the second half of this story that we're gonna get into. Anyway, I would cut off right here. I would go do that, maybe come back or just do whatever you want and don't listen to me whichever it's up to you thanks for the rest of you welcome back now we cut off at my story right about the time at as I was going back to the ER the day after Christmas so remember I had had pleurodesis on both sides at Blanchfield Army Community Hospital on Fort Campbell um, where both myself and my husband are stationed and this is again where I had the pleurodesis done is the surgery and they scrape up the lungs and so now the day after Christmas I am back at the ER and they have done two CAT scans. I've had my CAT scanned or CT scan, computerized tomography, whatever, however you want to say it. And now I'm being told that those surgeries have failed. And they failed because air continued to leak in that dang pleural space of mine, preventing my visceral pleura, again, that outer layer, from adhering to my parietal pleura. I just said that completely backwards. Visceral pleura is not your outer layer of pleura. It's your inner layer of pleura. So, so anyway, one layer is not sticking to the to the other, okay? Visceral's outer, parietal. Dang it, how do I keep messing that up? Visceral is inner, parietal, parietal is outer. We got it, visceral, inner, parietal, outer. I think my ADHD meds are wearing off because I'm recording this kind of late. So hang, hang with me, things might get a little goofy. But remember the anatomy and physiology lesson I did in part one? Um, I might need to do that again, even for myself, because yeah, I'm going to get things backwards. But simply put, the outside of my actual lung wasn't sticking to my chest wall itself, which was the point of the whole pleurodesis. Scrapity, scrape, scrape, bleeding, healing, adhering via scar tissue. Got it? Remember? Well, it didn't happen. And that's what we're finding out from these CAT scans. We know this because, again, that CAT scan on the morning of the 27th of December, it told the surgeon, remember who I deemed a a genius for doing it this way, that the oxygen and nitrogen that was trapped in my pleural space was rising to the posterior of my trunk because he had me lay in the prone on my tum-tum for the CAT scan. So that's where we're at in the story. And, oh, boy, the surgeon who had ordered the CT... Again, the genius. Uh, him and Major Parati had come into my room that morning, a little bit after the CT scan was done. And I was in the room on the fourth floor of Bach. That's their med surge floor where they had had me stay the night. I love the nurses there, so sweet. They even put me back in the quote, 
your favorite room, which was the pediatric Madagascar-themed room that I had stayed in last time. So they don't see many peds at Blanchfield, and I had the honor of staying in there. Every wall had an extension of an elaborate and nicely done wall mural. If I were a kid, I would have loved that room. Hell, let's be honest. I did love that room, and I'm an, an adult, but I'm not 30, so I'm not a real adult yet. They had Moto Moto, the hippo painted, getting like hand sanitizer from the actual wall, wall-mounted dispenser. Melman the giraffe, Alex the lion, the rest of the crew, literally all around the wall of this room. So kudos to whoever did that work. And sorry, I got off topic there for a second. I just don't want to leave that detail out. Back to business. The surgeons walked in. Okay, they've reviewed my CT scan. And I already knew the message that they came to deliver as soon as I saw their faces. It was like splashed across their face. Um, Well, okay, I didn't know what exactly the news was because I'm not a mind reader, but I knew it was not good. (laughs) They did not have good looks on their faces. And why are both of them coming to deliver me news? So they asked how I was doing, and then they got right into it. Major Pierotti, he's the one who did the surgeries originally, well, led the team who did it, um, started off by telling me I have bad news. Like, duh, I knew it. And then here it comes. The pleurodesis was a failure, and we know that from the CT. Yeah. So... On he went, explaining the details of how his efforts had not paid off in the end like we had all hoped. And he basically said I needed another procedure called a pleurectomy. A pleurectomy, which I have kind of been describing on my social media as having had bilateral partial pleurectomies. That's a procedure in which they remove most of the parietal pleura. Again, the outer layer, not the inner, the outer layer of that thin membrane that one sticks to the inside of each pleural cavity's wall. So the outer one. This is done by sharp dissection and they use these forceps to peel it away. Ew, yuck, right? Now, actually it sounds kind of cool, but not on myself. I would like to watch it, but not on myself. But it's supposed to be more effective than a pleurodesis itself, which is what Major Pierotti was now telling me. When you strip that pleura away, it's attempting to completely obliterate that pleural cavity. So I asked him, why didn't you just start with the pleurectomy then? Why put me through the pleurodesis if pleurectomy is better? And can I even live a good long life without a pleural space? I knew at the time the pleura was responsible for cushioning the lungs, okay? And it also had that small amount of fluid that helps reduce friction between the lungs and the rib cage during inflation and deflation of the lungs. Would I be having friction all the time then? Would I, this result in pain? Would I have chronic pain from it? These are the questions that I had. And the pleura, it also serves as divisions kind of for the cavities in your body. You have pleura around several different organs, not just your lungs. But it's a, it's a divider. It's like a wall. And, and it helps keep them in their designated areas. Without that, what would happen? Like, are my legs going to stay where they're supposed to? I guess. Right? But it helps also keep infection uh, spreading to and from the lungs. So, like, am I going to be okay without a pleura with these pleurectomies? I don't know. But these were the concerns and questions I had for the surgeons, and they answered all of them and reassured me as best as possible. So, shout out to these doctors. Their professionalism and bedside manner displaying empathy is top-notch. Way better than Vanderbilt docs, but we'll get into that. Apparently, pleurectomy comes with more risk than pleurodesis, which is why they wanted to start off conservatively and just do the pleurodesis, and I respect that. And yeah, best case scenario is if your pleurodesis works, you get to keep your pleura. And a very, very, very small percentage of pleurodesises, if that's how you say the plural of pleurodesis, fail 
and require pleurectomies, like 5% or something. And of course, I'm part of that 5% because why wouldn't I be? Because everything else is going wrong, right? And Peg always told me I was special. Kidding. I love you, Peg. Thanks for being a great mom. But anyway, pleurectomy is something that's done more commonly, like for people who have mesothelioma, which if you didn't know, that's a cancer linked to asbestos exposure, or for patients with excess fluid buildup in the pleural space. So like me with air, but instead they have excess fluid. They call that pleural effusions. Or sometimes with patients like me who, you know, their pleurities failed and now they need pleurectomies. So what this does, it leaves no chance or space rather for that air to accumulate. The risk of bleeding though, and the complications of the risk of bleeding, that's so much higher in this surgery than it is with a pleurodesis. Actually like 20% is I believe what they told me of patients that bled postoperatively from a pleurectomy and required surgeons to go back inside their chest after they had already stitched it up and stop it. It would also require pulmonary rehabil- rehabilitation as well. And if you didn't know that, just basically is set to try to improve the function of, of a patient's lungs or my lungs in their breathing. But overall, it was explained to me that I would require this surgery. And unfortunately, only one surgeon, the genius one that was there with Major Pierotti, not that Major Pierotti's not smart, but this one, I love this guy. He was so calm. And the thing he did with the, the CT scan, I thought that was really cool. Uh, he is now in there with them. And he is the only one who was experienced in performing them and capable of leading a team to do it. But unfortunately, he had plans to go on a holiday leave the next day. Because remember, this is just two days past Christmas now. And so that's why they transferred me to Vanderbilt, where a thoracic team could take my case. Before they left the room, they also told me it was time that I had to get more chest tubes put in, one on each side. We call that bilateral again. So yay, more chest tubes. I was taken to the OR probably within just a few hours, and I I did get the special nerve blocks, thankfully, so I would be more comfortable and not cussing out any nurses. And then I just waited and waited and waited some more. My mom, Peg, came up from Georgia to be with me, and I felt absolutely terrible because I didn't get to go down and see her with the kids for Christmas at her house like we had planned to do the day after Christmas. But mama loves me and I'm thankful that she was there for me. And my mood this time was very different than it was during my 10 day stay in early December for the pleurodesis or bilateral pleurodesis. We, we weren't making as many funny videos, me and Peg, and I didn't bring my hair extensions. I didn't put on makeup as much and not really because of the pain. I. I think that was managed with the morphine pretty well. I was quite honestly just like depressed and anxious, both. And I needed a chaplain. I remember when I was in the OR getting those those tubes put back in, um, most of the staff, they remembered me and my upbeat spirit. If you know me, I'm pretty upbeat unless something is going on um, that's major. But I came out of the surgery and like came to you know, waking up from the surgery, from the tubes. And I was so emotional and sad. And they noticed that. And they say that how you go into surgery is how you come out. So I came out very, very sad. I don't know how accurate that is, but it definitely was for me. I went in worried and sad about being back in the hospital. And I came out sobbing and feeling like I was just a failure. Not the surgeries, but me. And they do a chest x-ray once you wake up, once they put the tubes in. That way, they wait for you to wake up so you can sit up and consent to it you know you have to be like I'm not pregnant but they want to confirm the placement 
of the tubes and that's the only way that they could do it but they use a well i guess they could do it from ct but they use a portable chest x-ray they come around they take it and the tech that was doing the x-ray i recognized him from many of my other chest x-rays because i have had a lot of chest x-rays if you didn't think about that i've probably had close to 40 or 50 chest chest x-rays now okay i've had a lot but this tech, he had red hair and he wore it in this man bun. A pretty quiet guy, not like the other regular who was my x-ray tech who was pretty chatty. But this guy, I remember having not a whole lot of interaction with. He's just a very quiet guy, kind of shy. But I want you to hold on to this information because it's relevant. It's just, it's going to matter here in a few. The time between requesting the transfer to Vanderbilt and me actually going to Vanderbilt was a whole five nights and six days. I literally just laid in bed with, with chest tubes, one on each side, for almost a week. I had Peg there, of course, but it was depressing. Um, like, what was my unit going to think? I'm back in the hospital. I've got all these issues. I mean, how annoying to keep hearing about my problems, right? And my concerns about being med-boarded were definitely growing. Of course, I miss my kids. And I felt bad because they didn't get to go to Georgia. And I didn't get to spend precious time off work and them from school playing together with their new treasures that Santa had brought. Not to mention, my husband had been hard-slotted for Special Forces Sniper course. And so if you don't know what that means, when you're going to an Army course, hard-slotted means you definitely have a lot you're not on standby or anything because sometimes they'll send you to schools on standby and you just don't even really know if you're gonna get in it's kind of like flying on standby which can be a bummer and make it really hard to plan things but he was hard slotted for again the special forces sniper course which is a nine-week course that he was really looking forward to and it was going to be taking place at fort bragg uh and he was supposed to leave for that on the 9th of january it was looking like he wasn't going to be able to go even if my surgery happened within the next day or so because this was a major invasive surgery and would you know require me to truly convalesce this time and that means i would need someone and peg has a job so she would have to go back i would need someone which is my husband to help support me and while i'm convalescing and transitioning home from the hospital i didn't know how to have this conversation with him especially after I, I had mentioned it over christmas and got no real response so i've been dil just to clear this up i've been diligently looking for a sitter to bring Bo to school starting after the holidays and i've been having trouble because up until ben would go to sniper school it was a non-issue this school year i mean i had been instructing so my schedule allowed for me to bring him to school no problem and then when i was done with that uh, ben was home, so that was fine, but then he left for another school, and I started at a new unit where I have to be at work at 5.50 in the morning, and I had made a comment on Christmas Day in front of Ben's parents that we were having a hard time finding a solution to this because if I have to be at work at 5.40 in the morning at my unit every day and Ben's not able to take him to school, then I need someone to take him to school, and I had been looking on Care.com, which is not cheap, by the way. Care.com is like $35 a month at the base level to find care. It's really frustrating. And I've been looking on the different Facebook pages, been asking around. Nobody's interested because it would require them to come to my house at five in the morning every day. So if Ben was gone for nine weeks, I would need them every single day, Monday through Friday. And I didn't have a solution to that. But I had made that comment on Christmas day. He didn't say anything. And his dad was like, well, Ben can't do it because he's hard slotted. He can't miss the school. And I was like, well, he can't go to school for nine weeks. If we don't have someone take our kid to school, I have to be at work at 5.50 in the morning. What am I going to do? Just tell work, sorry, I can't be there. Why, why do I have to be the one that tells, 
you know, my, my job, I, that I can't do it. I have a childcare issue. To me, it felt like once again, I have to suffer the consequences of being a parent in the military. And, and it frustrated me. It really did. Thank God, though, a chaplain came to see me finally. Remember, I had requested one five times during my last day and never got one. Yeah, I got a chaplain this time. And I'm thankful because Major Pierotti made sure to have me one. He actually had the on-duty hospital chaplain pay me a visit. And great guy who I got to emotionally dump my feelings on about having this hard conversation with my husband about this course. And he told me I I needed to have this conversation ASAP, sooner rather than later, that the more that I waited, the worse it would be. And I I guess I agreed because... Uh, especially if Ben still thought there was a chance that he was going to be able to go, like this was not going to get any better. It was just going to fester and explode. So the, and I I just want to say this real quick, the chaplain, he had been married like 20 years or something himself and was relatively new to the army. He told me a similar story about how when first he joined and got done with his training, he was all gung ho about going to ranger school and he got a slot to go or whatever, maybe standby, I don't know. But after having been away doing whatever entry training chaplains do and only one year into this army life that his wife wasn't supportive at the time. So she had sat him down and said her piece about the timing and it not being good for her or the kids and needed him not to go to ranger school right now. And he didn't go which he said it hurt him a little, but that he ultimately loved his wife and kids and put them first because he knew when his army career was over, they will be the ones there and it wasn't worth losing that spousal support and trust over ranger school at that time, that he could go to ranger school later. And Ben and I haven't been married for 20 years and we've certainly gone through the ups and downs, but I felt like everything was going well up until my lung issues. And I guess I was wrong because my friends started asking me, why Peg was with me at the hospital so much and not Ben. Something I kind of wonder myself, but I just kind of let go. And then now I'm there a second time, well, third time technically, and I'm jeopardizing his plans to go to sniper school that he's hard slotted for. I mean, what was going to happen? We already had that big blowout fight before Christmas, if you remember, because of all the pain I was in and the stress and premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And oh yeah, the Valium, that wasn't helping at all. Thankfully, I'm off of it. But was he committed enough to me to sacrifice going to the school? And would he stay by my side during my surgeries? Would he be there for me and my needs postoperatively? Would he resent me for this? I was really worried. We ended up having the conversation that night, though, per the chaplain's recommendation. Luckily, Ben already had considered the impact and was already under the impression that he was likely not going. That took away the need to deliver that hard blow, but the conversation did take a turn at some point, and I felt like resentment was starting to show. I I really felt like he was super annoyed with me and not the situation, that it was, you know, it was I'm the problem and not my lungs, something that was completely out of my control, and it felt personal. And I didn't feel his support, and he left that night. He was going to stay the night, but he left, and Peg came and took his place, again, staying with me until I ended up transferring. So that was pretty sad. Um, And when I said this whole experience had affected my marriage, this is what I'm talking about. Before this health crisis, everything was seemingly fine. It It really makes you stop and reflect on your vows, especially the whole in sickness and in health part, because this was the sickness part, and this was really testing us. Anyway, the stay at Bach waiting to transfer had been fairly unremarkable up until this point. 
the 29th I was of December, I was laying in bed and I went to prop myself up for something. And I put both hands kind of by my sides, flat on the bed. And I went to push myself up and accidentally had my hand on a tube without realizing it. And when I pushed up, I caused a suture to rip and the tube dislodged about four to five inches. It didn't actually hurt. I know it sounds painful, but because I had those nerve blocks, I didn't even realize that it was dislodged until a little later when it had time to kind of shift out. I saw it. I asked Peg to come take a little look-see, and there it was. The stitch that was holding it in place wrapped around the tube was like five inches from my chest. It was not by the side at all. wasn't holding it in place. Uh-oh, spaghetti We rang for the nurse, and it was about 6 o'clock in the evening on, again, the 29th of December. And this is important because the shift change for nurses... Uh, Bach is at seven and they work 12 hour shifts. So as you might imagine, six o'clock being one hour before shift change is not the time to start having major issues, right? This is when nurses kind of start mentally checking out, uh, looking forward to getting off work. I know I've worked 12 hour ER shifts before. It's a human factor thing, but we told this nurse who was an army captain, who'd been a great guy up until this point. We told him that we probably needed to notify Major Pierotti or whichever surgeon doctor that was on duty at the time about it. Instead, he was taking a look and I was laying on my side. He was like, let me just take a look. And he just pushed that sucker right back in until the stitch was flush with my skin. But of course, it wasn't doing its job because he didn't redo the, the suture, but he taped it down. In his mind, I imagine him thinking, yep, problem solved, problem staying solved. God, no, 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 no. This is not what you do, y'all. The especially concerning part was that I had my first chest tube site that I had before Christmas, and it had this little superficial infection, which just means kind of infected on the top, not like a huge deal, not not at risk for becoming like systemic infection at all or sepsis, but we, we were treating that by leaving it left open to air out. That's what the doctors had me doing. So when this current tube dislodged it actually made contact with the other site because of the anatomical position of both which means whatever germs or superficial infection was going on that were on my skin right there good and bad right from also your skin has flora and that have good and bad germs on it so all these germs got introduced to my chest cavity so thanks guy I didn't even have time to stop him from doing any of that by the way he didn't ask he just did it quickly and it hurt badly which made me think He didn't get it in the right position, right? Because I had the nerve blocks. So if it was in the right place, I probably wouldn't have felt it. Remember? Yeah. Me and Peg didn't know what to do. But shift change happened luckily soon. And we were really concerned. So we told the next nurse who came on shift who was shocked. And I'm guessing the culprit who did the whole thing and popped my chest tube back in. I'm guessing he didn't include that in his patient handoff report at all. But this nurse, he was a nice, quiet guy, civilian guy, he took charge and he called the surgeon and he actually assisted him in taking that chest tube out of me, which happens at bedside, by the way. And that was around eight o'clock PM. Needless to say, my surgeon was pissed that this happened. Not at me, of course, but at the nurse who did it. He actually told me a couple days ago they had to revamp their training and do retraining for all the staff because of this one guy. And of course, he had to come back in at like eight o'clock at night to do this. Yeah, so don't do that, people. If you're in the business of, of caring for people with chest tubes, definitely don't do that. Over the next few days while waiting, they actually put my drain on the right side, which I kept in 
they put it on water seal because both lungs were, were looking like they were staying up. And then the right lung went down again. So they put it back on suction. So up, down, up, down. And then my left side, it didn't have a chest tube anymore because he went ahead and took it out. This was now on December 30th when they had put it back on suction on my right side. So again, all sorts of ups and downs with these lungs. It really begs the question, what the heck is wrong with them? Also during the wait at Bach while I was waiting to go to Vanderbilt, we ended up discussing with the provider about the Valium and how it was making me crazy. Well, crazier than usual. <laughs> it was given to me primarily for the purpose of reducing muscle spasms, but it could also help keep me calm and relaxed in an off-label usage. And it's prescribed this way for panic disorders and moderate to severe anxiety commonly, but again, I, I was just getting it for muscle spasms. Instead of being calm and not panicky, I had an adverse reaction. I was hyper excited, agitated more than normal, aggressive, having disturbed sleep, and behaving inappropriately. And I knew I needed off of it. I wanted to try something else. So they gave me clonopin instead, which treats seizures and panic disorders kind of like Valium, but it, um, well, it comes from the same class of drugs as Valium and same risk of side effects or mostly the same uh, maybe a few different in adverse reactions. And you'd think they were the same, but I'm not a chemistry guru or expert on pharmacology past my basic understanding of the drugs I need to be familiar with as a medic. And of course, those I've taken myself, uh, which I encourage all of you who take any sort of prescription medications to know what you're taking. And especially if you're on multiple things, because interactions occur all the time between meds and and foods, and of course, alcohol, which I did not drink alcohol until I had ran out of the Valium. No Tito's or wine for me. Once I ran out, I did, but of course, I wasn't drinking in the, in the hospital, um, and I really only drank on Christmas Eve or, and yeah, Christmas Eve and Christmas to like numb the pain, but always be careful not to drink with certain meds. It can really be problematic or life-threatening. Okay, enough dare officer type good medic rambling. What was clonopin going to do for me that Valium couldn't, and how could I avoid the adverse effects? The key differences in the two are the routes that they can be administered. So Valium has multiple methods where you can do IV or rectal or oral. Clonopin is only available orally, either one that you swallow or one that disintegrates, like a dissolving one. Valium works much quicker. The maximum effect of it is like within an hour, where clonopin takes one to four hours. The half-life of a drug, that's the time that it takes for half of the drug to leave the body. Valium stays up to 100 hours, clonopin up to 40, which, of course, vary person to person because of the way that we metabolize things differently. That's just some science for y'all. Not to mention the dosages are different, of course. Ultimately, I still felt the adverse effects that I was feeling on Valium, also on clonopin, after a few days. And it being an intermediate acting drug wasn't really helping relax my muscles as well as Valium anyway. That's when I was put on Alprazolam, aka Xanax, which is also from the same class as drugs, same class of drugs, but it has, it's for the same conditions as the others, pretty much like seizures, spasms, insomnia, panic attacks. But the main difference in Valium and Xanax are also the length of how long they work in the body. Annex is short acting compared to clonobin, like I said was intermediate acting and Valium that's long acting. I hope this is all making sense now, but Xanax works in about 30 minutes and lasts three to four hours. So it's very effective for panic disorders, which were a bigger issue for me at this point than the muscle spasms from my chest tubes or surgeries or condition at this point. 
I don't have seizure issues, so Xanax isn't amazing for seizures anyway because you can only swallow it orally and someone who's having a seizure can't swallow. So they decided to put me on that. I can't begin, nor do I have the time or will to explain how drugs from the same class affect people differently, but they do. Many times drugs won't jive with patients and they find out only through trial dosages and then try another one instead. But it was clear after after just one day on Xanax um, that, you know, around the morning of the 31st, I think, New Year's Eve, that I was so much calmer and more relaxed, totally mellow yellow and definitely better uh, all around, just and better to be around. I continue taking it still only as needed, which has been about every couple of days or so due to other life issues. Uh, and again, that premenstrual dysphoric disorder. So it has helped me sleep at night too. My first time taking an XR dose the other the other day, which is an extended release dose, I slept until 11 a.m., which is crazy. I'm a morning person. Six to seven hours of sleep is all that I need, but I slept almost tw- 12 hours. And I guess maybe my body needed it. Maybe it was because it was a Xanax extended release that I took at nine o'clock at night, but I can't do that anymore because I can't sleep till 11 o'clock every day. But yeah, Xanax, that's how I got on it. Okay, so besides the Xanax, also on New Year's Eve, I was told Vandy, short for Vanderbilt, where of course I was still waiting to go, still had full beds. The wait had been so long, guys. If it weren't for the chest tubes and lung up up and downs, I could have just waited at home, right? I mean, it was looking like another night at Blanchfield for me, and I was getting really frustrated and just more depressed, honestly. But remember the redheaded x-ray tech I was describing earlier, and I said, hold on to that information? He came in sometime on the evening of New Year's Eve, and I can't remember where Peg or Ben was. Probably my mom had gone to my house for a shower or something, if I had to guess. But they weren't with me at the time. But this x-ray tech, who had been so quiet before finally started talking to me and y'all what a sweetheart he was pretty shy even when speaking but he asked me if I remembered him when I came to after surgery a few days prior remember when they had put both tubes back in and I told him I did vaguely but um despite being really out of it from the anesthesia that I remembered his red hair and no offense because it was a cool red red man button or ginger man button he laughed and then he began to tell me how when he came in to shoot the portable chest x-ray he overheard me crying and telling the nurses and surgery techs there when I woke up um he, well he heard me sobbing and saying basically that I was sad to be back and going through all of this but that I didn't regret waiting on coming back in even though I knew something was wrong with me because of all the pain because of how important it was for me to be home with my kids through Christmas. And there was no way that I was missing that or doing any less for them this year, especially since I didn't know if I was going to be okay ultimately. And what if they didn't even believe in Santa next year? I was stunned that he remembered all this. I told him, wow, I can't believe you remember me, a stranger venting post-operatively like that. And y'all, he told me how incredible he thought I was for doing that. His voice was quiet but serious, and the sincerity in his tone really shook me. And it kind of gave me this hope that I had done the right thing, even if I had sacrificed my own health for my children. And I'm not saying that you as a listener should put off necessary medical treatment or evaluation for your kids to enjoy a holiday necessarily. They need you as a parent alive more than they do 
need you present for like Christmas. But I didn't want to miss that magic. And this guy understood. He understood how I was feeling and the sentiment in his message was conveyed so genuinely. I cried because I'm sappy and I thanked him for his kindness and I wrote a little attaboy on the hospital comment cards for him. I don't remember his name, but I will never forget that. I will never forget him. And people express empathy, well, they try to at least all the time. But his, no offense to anyone else, his was unmatched. I mean, like I said, I will never forget it. Pretty soon after he shot that x-ray that he was in there for anyway, he was in there to shoot an x-ray, the results came back. And Major Pierotti came in and said it showed air leaking in both lungs despite the right tube still being in place. So remember my left tube's out at this point because of that stupid nurse and my right tube is in and both of my lungs are leaking air and the, the right tube isn't even really doing anything for it, which is crazy. But he had found a way to up my status on the wait list and got me into Vanderbilt that night. Before I could go, however, they needed to bring me back to their operating room at Blanchfield, clean out the left side where the nurse had shoved the tube back in and put a new one in. And as well, the right tube needed to be pretty much repositioned or replaced. I don't know if they replaced it completely or just fixed its positioning, but they wanted it to be, of course, more effective. And then everything after that started moving really quickly. I called Peg. I told her to wait at my house because the OR, uh, or after the OR, I'd be transferred by ambulance. And she said she could just drive to Nashville, which was about an hour away. And that's where Vanderbilt is. Same for Ben. If he wanted to do that, of course, um, but someone had to stay with the kids. So I got prepped for the OR and the surgeon, Major Variety, actually wrote Happy New Year on my chest, which I'll include that picture on my podcast's Instagram page if you didn't see it on my personal one before, which is pretty funny. But Ben, he came up there to be with me, which made me so happy. And he brought me little New Year's Eve party hats. And I got my tubes placed. And after anesthesia wore off, they got me on an ambulance with this ambulance crew to take me down there. And I have photos of our crew with our party hats on. So be on the lookout for that on the Instagram as well. And they gave me a nice big dose of Dilaudid right before transport. So I don't remember much of that hour-long ride, thank God. But when we got there, the crew was definitely trying to hurry and get me handed off because if I remember correctly, they only had like 10 minutes or something to get to the top of some parking garage so that they could watch the fireworks or the ball drop or whatever was happening at midnight. I don't know. I was just happy to be there, even if it meant ringing in the new year without Tito's or family or friends. Instead, on a heavy narcotic, but what a way to end my year, right? The symbolism wasn't overlooked, and I thought about it way too much over the next 11 days, but ultimately, I was happy to be at Vanderbilt, and we could start addressing this issue. At Vanderbilt, I started out in a room, either an ICU or a step-down unit. Uh, I Honestly, I don't know, and I couldn't find that information on my records, but I was just being monitored there with my tubes. Peg was there. I had respiratory text chat respiratory techs, I cannot speak, checking on me and I had physical or occupational therapy techs. I don't know what they were, but they were hauling me up and down the hallways because they worry about pneumonia when you're laying around all the time. And if it wasn't obvious I was laying around like all the time because of, again, chest tubes on both sides and they're connected to these big square drains or like rectangle drains that you have to carry. It's kind of a pain in the butt to walk around. And I was under the influence of meds again. So, but Vanderbilt's a teaching hospital. It was totally like Grey's Anatomy with residents coming through and doing their rounds in the early morning so they could report to their attending. It's actually kind of annoying, but well, you had to repeat answers all the time and you kept being woken up and that was annoying, but I am okay with learning. I support it. Let's learn for science. So I stayed mostly polite throughout that experience. 
Vanderbilt's kind of funny. Like, they don't trust anybody else's labs or imaging. So after my team collected their own labs and imaging and observation and decided on their course of action, I was finally scheduled for surgery. On January 3rd, I was prepped and ready to go. And this nice lady, she had helped me into this paper gown and hat for the big event. I was right outside the OR. I was I was ready to go. They even had this pretty cool hose thing that connected to my gown, providing warm air that Blanchfield didn't have. And it's called a Bear Hugger Forced Air Patient Warming System. Not only did it make me feel all warm and fuzzy, it also monitored my temperature the entire time. So science and technology are pretty neat, y'all. Unfortunately for me, after many days waiting and on narcotics and opioids, which if you didn't know, have a really uncool side effect of constipating you, uh, which is just another reason why you shouldn't abuse these drugs, I was indeed constipated. Gross, TMI, probably, but I can't not tell you the story because it was hilarious looking back. They give you Miralax constantly to help keep things moving. That's the powder stuff that dissolves in your drink. But that wasn't cutting it at the time. And I remember getting Dolcolax, this fun little suppository. They gave that to me a day or so before, which also didn't do much. But you know what did work? That warm freaking air from the Bear Hugger Force Air Patient Warming System. And my God, as soon as that lady had connected it and left the room, I was feeling all warm and fuzzy. I took a photo of myself prep for surgery. You know, I like my selfies. I wanted to share. Uh, and then right after I snapped this picture of me in this big blow up gown and cap, I felt the sudden urge to defecate. And before I could, <laughs> before I could even think about getting up to handle my business, I lost complete control of my bowels and boom, there it was. I had made quite a mess in this bed just minutes from being taken into the OR. I didn't want them being a whole team of doctors to come in and so what did I do? I jumped right up, unhooked the tube, stripped the paper gown off, used it to clean up the evidence of what I had done. I even stripped the sheets and threw them in the linen disposal and I'm doing all this just so you know, all while having my freaking chest tubes in and holding my drain. So I'm like holding my drains in one hand and then doing the rest with the other hand. It was crazy. How adrenaline from the fear of being caught laying there in my own shit? I don't know. Whatever. No way. Not me. They were not going to catch me. So thankfully there was a bathroom uh, right there connected to this room that I was in. And because I was standing there as naked as a jaybird minus my hairnet, and holding this gown full of my own shit in one hand and both drain systems in the other, I ran in there, I shoved the paper gown full of poop in the trash bin, and I sat my flat butt down on the toilet to make sure it didn't happen again. And I shit you not, no pun intended, they totally came back into my room 30 seconds or so after I started hiding in the bathroom. And I just stayed quiet. And I heard them be a little confused and then they left and then the crna came back in knocked on my bathroom door and i admitted kind of what i had done i and i ashamedly asked for a new gown what a freaking crisis y'all thank god for that bathroom otherwise i would have just been caught standing there naked with mud butt by this team of thoracic surgeons just not prepared for my surgery at all that would have been insane but i got myself cleaned up redressed reprepped rewarmed with my inflatable system bear hugger thing and finally they came back in to explain the procedure for like the millionth time and hauled me in 
They gave me sedatives before they unlocked the bed's brakes. So I, I don't really remember anything after the point of making it through the threshold of that door. What I know from what they told me and what I read on the operative report from the attending physician is that they performed a pleurodesis thoracoscopy, same thing as what Bach originally had done, but quote, more aggressively and thoroughly, meaning they took more time and it being a thoracic surgeon supervising the procedure was likely more thorough and they scraped more of my chest wall to ensure adhesion. So basically I'm somewhat sedated, but I can't remember it. And I moved to the OR table, placed on my back in the supine position. They give me some antibiotics through my IV, a shot of heparin uh, subcutaneously, which prevents clots, the blood thinner, and they initiated general anesthesia. After they did this, they placed a laryngeal mask airway, which is an LMA, and it's a superglottic airway with this cuffed mask, which conforms to a patient's laryngeal inlet and seals it right off. And this is it also has this tube that sticks out of the mouth. This is where you can provide ventilation and such. We're actually trained to place these as combat medics. So very cool to read about how they did this in the report. They also did, allegedly, according to the report, a flexible bronchoscopy to check out my airway, which looked pristine apparently. And they did a bronchio alveolar lavage, which basically means that they wash out the airways with saline and then they take a sample for culture testing and diagnostic purposes. Next, I was intubated with an endotracheal tube and then placed to lay on my left side at a little bit of an angle. And they took out my existing chest tube, put another one in on their own. I don't know what it is about not trusting what other people do, but put a new one in and they made three small incisions to start exploring my chest wall and diaphragm. They found a, a few small, quote, gelatinous nodules on my chest wall, which they thought were related to my prior pleurodesis, but they went ahead and removed them and sent them off for testing anyway to rule out endometrial implants. Endometrial implants are when your endometrium, which is the lining of your uterus, yep, uterus, grow elsewhere in your body, like your lungs. Wild, rare, but wild. Moving on, they examined the right lung carefully and they didn't find any blebs, which is cool, so. If you have never heard of a bleb, a bleb is a weakened part of your lung that can rupture and cause spontaneous pneumothorax. The common body habitus of someone with blebs and that has this issues are going to be your tall, skinny, think lanky white guys. Not so common in females. It's very rare. It does happen. And they thought maybe I had an issue with blebs, but no blebs at all or no blebs at this time. That is the time of my surgery. Then they scraped up my entire parietal pleura, again, that outer layer of tissue lining your pleural space. And they scraped that with a pad during the pleurodesis, and then they removed parts of it. After the sutures were put in on that side, they rolled me onto my right side, and they did the exact same thing on my left, and they found those gelatinous nodules there as well. So there you have it. That's what they did to me. It should go without saying, I was on heavy drugs for pain afterwards after I woke up and under close monitoring for the next several days. And it's all a bit fuzzy, but I do remember moving to a couple new rooms, which was pretty aggravating because I had accumulated so much stuff during my stay. And I remember a friend visiting me, of course, really sweet friend uh, that lives in Nashville. And she brought me gifts from a group of girlfriends I have that, you know, I, I have from back home in Alabama which thank you guys or gals and Peg stayed with me and Ben would come visit when he got someone to keep the kids and things started looking up for me they talked about switching my drains to water seal again just turning off that suction and then observing me and if I was fine on drains and they would take the tubes out and then they could observe me a little bit more and then send me home 
But on the 6th of January, my mom, she was telling me she needed to head home the next day. She's a teacher and school was starting, so I understood that. Like I said, I was looking to be discharged within the next two days or so. I actually felt more aware and I was stable. And so I told her instead of staying with me that night, that she should go to her hotel nearby to get a good night of sleep before driving home. I didn't want Peg to be all sleepy before she drives. She agreed and so the plan was to come see me the next morning before she took off. Ben was with the kids that night, so I was alone. And being alone in the hospital sucks, but occasionally I got tired of not being alone. And this particular night, I was feeling a little irritated, although well enough to be by myself. I went to sleep that night on 6 January, pretty early, like 7 o'clock, right after my latest dose of Dilaudid, I'm guessing. And I didn't feel sick at the time, just a little irritated. Um, And of course, what was I going to do? I mean, I had bilateral chest tubes in still. Then, in a turn of events, I woke up at 10 p.m., so just three hours later, feeling hot as hell, sweating, shaking from the chills all at the same time, and I propped up when the nurse came in to give me my 10 o'clock meds, and my back was hurting so bad from flank pain. I had 103 point something degree temperature, and I never really could hear what she said after the point, so that's why I say 103 point something, Um, but I was in too much pain and too sick to ask for clarification but I knew it wasn't good uh they had me do a urine sample because I told them about my kidney pain and walking to the bathroom was a disaster unlike earlier in the day where I was ambulating to use the bathroom just fine with minimal help even with my drains still in place I would just boop carry them go to the bathroom whatever it hurt with each step that I took my foot would strike the ground and my body would like scream in pain and I would moan and it took me about three minutes just to walk 10 steps to the toilet. My breathing was extremely shallow and painful. I couldn't even get air, or that's how I felt, which freaked me out. And I, could, I felt like I couldn't catch my breath. I asked my nurse for oxygen. She kind of looked at me like I was bananas because the doctors hadn't ordered me any. And I was doing much better and I hadn't needed it. And I remember I got kind of snippy with her and demanding oxygen. I was like, go give me a fucking oxygen. And when I finally got back in bed after the urine collection, my monitors for my respiratory rate, they were showing 40 breaths a minute. And my nurse thought I was having a panic attack, which, yeah, I was a little panicky, remember? But um, I was already on freaking Xanax, and what the Xanax wasn't going to help me out anyway. She offered me more Xanax. I took it, but I still had really short of breath, uh, fast respirations that were super, super painful. And I knew something was not right. So the nurse called the on-call doctor and told him about my fever and he was annoyed. I don't know if he got woken up for it or what, but he made this nurse cry. He ordered a bunch of tests and oxygen, thank God. And then other than that, he was just agitated, more agitated than he was concerned. And again, he made the nurse cry. I heard them talking about it in the hallway. Um, I was already on Tylenol pretty much around the clock, which is a known fever reducer, and it wasn't time for my next dose. So could I have more Tylenol? These are the questions she had for the doc, and he was just kind of ugly. So what would my temp be without Tylenol in my system? I don't know. Uh, I'm going to say this as undramatically as I possibly can because I want y'all to understand how serious I am and how I felt. I thought I was going to die. Like, I know people say that all the time. Oh, yeah, it hurts so bad. I thought I was going to die. No, I thought I was going to die. And at Vanderbilt, they have these things called care partners. So they're not quite nurses. Sometimes they're in nursing school or something. Uh, Mine was incredible that night. She helped me with everything. She sat there and held my hand and sat right by my side while I shook and cried in pain until I fell asleep. 
What an angel. I don't remember her name, unfortunately, but I went to sleep. I even had the nurse call Peg, who was my emergency contact during my stay since she was there the most, because I couldn't even muster up the strength to text or phone her myself. And Peg ended up coming up the next morning as promised, and I can't remember why she still left for Georgia or when or if my test came back and that's why but they swabbed me for COVID in the middle of the testing that they did the night before and wouldn't you know positive for the record I am vaccinated and I had talked about this all in a podcast episode uh, earlier in this season about vaccinations and inoculations and the history of them if you want to go check that one out but I got vaccinated if you remember from listening to those in February or, or March I think my first dose was February, second dose in March of 2021. And as far as I know, I've never had any variant of COVID before. I've only been tested like three times in the past and they all were negative. No sickness like this since the flu in January of 2020. Not even when I got tested right after Thanksgiving. I mean, it wasn't this bad. And the fact that the Lord allowed me to get COVID while I still had mild persistent air leaks according to my daily x-ray and my chest tube still in place... And that it was contracted from the hospital, that was enough to send me into this mindset that it just might actually be my time to die. And I know this is going to get a little bit morbid, guys, and I'm sorry, but I really thought the coincidence was a weird omen or something, a spiritual message warning me that death was knocking on my door. And throughout the pandemic this far, I have been pretty neutral. If a place required a mask, I would wear one. If not, great. I didn't have to. I flew multiple times. I went to a concert. I hung out with friends in large groups, ate publicly more than I even ordered in. I have lived my life and avoided COVID for the last two years. And I was not really concerned if I did get COVID because overall I was pretty healthy. I only got my vaccine because I knew it'd become required in the army and why wouldn't I? I'm not like the pinnacle of health anyway. So whatever, I'll take another vaccine. That's that's new. I don't care. Whatever for science. And to the fact that I got COVID from just living my life the last two years, not really making big changes, really frustrated me. And so I that's another reason why I thought this has to be my time to go. There's no way that this isn't my time to go. This is karma or something. Because I was COVID positive, they moved me to another room, which was, again, annoying because I had all my stuff. Um, They put me really close to the desk where the charge nurse sat. There was a window there in uh, on the door for my room, yay. And I was in, quote, isolation. That meant anyone coming into my room had to wear a gown and goggles and gloves. Nurses only came in when they had to or for scheduled meds and the food guys would like leave my tray at the door. Uh, but they pretty much avoided me as much as possible. I think even like overnight nurses would like skip me. They would pretty much ask me if I wanted to skip certain meds just so they could avoid coming in there, which was like not cool at all. But they only came in when they had to. And I understood it was kind of a pain in the butt just to come in there. But that meant it was just me and my 10 by 10 foot room with this bathroom for the next week. And it drove me absolutely crazy. My thoughts were racing. I felt sick. My heart rate stayed between 115 and 130. And they started remdesivir for the COVID, which I had concerns about initially. I have to say, um, the remdesivir, like, pretty much had to have saved my life because I wanted monoclonal antibodies. But at the time, the Delta variant monoclonal antibodies were being found out as ineffective in Omicron variant patients. And I don't know which variant I had because they don't test for variant at Vanderbilt, not for patients at least. They only do batch testing for research. 
At the time, they knew from batch testing that 85% of cases at that hospital were Omicron. So the chances that I had Omicron were 85%, but who really knows? I could have had Delta. And either way, they only had a very limited amount of the monoclonal antibodies that were for Omicron. And this is coming from the infectious disease doctor uh, that came up to visit me and explain it. And he had, he said at the time they had about 25 doses of that one that was for Omicron. And so they kind of held off on giving me those because those were for the people who were on uh, ventilators and stuff. And so I was like, you know, stable. I mean, I was not comfortable and I felt like I was going to die, but I wasn't dying yet. And the remdesivir, it seemed to work. Again, I think it saved my life. It was a three-day IV infusion. So for one hour each day, they gave it to me. And each day, I got a little bit better. They removed both tubes eventually, one and then the other 12 hours later within that time as well. Luckily, I have this amazing friend, Hillary, who came to visit me despite having COVID, which is crazy. She even personally shopped for me and got some things that I needed, embarrassing things, like depends. So I didn't just poop myself before going to the OR because of all of the uh, uh, laxatives that they had been giving to me. But I think if you've suffered from Omicron or Delta variant, again, because I don't know which one, one symptom that a lot of people have complained about is the dreaded D word. And I don't know what was going on with my bowels and my ability to control them, but I was getting into too much yeah, I, I this is yeah. I ew, I just needed depends. We'll just say that. She brought me all sorts of stuff, including those depends, and drove all the way to Nashville from Clarksville to do it. And she let me chat her ear off because I was missing being around humans so badly for like an hour. So I really appreciated her. Of course, she had to wear the apron and the goggles and the gloves, but I am forever thankful for friends like her. I went from isolation, heavy monitoring, meds around the clock, and the torture of my own thoughts to all of a sudden, one day on the 11th, they're like, hey, we're going to discharge you. Or actually, I think they told me on the 10th that night that they were looking at discharging me the next day. And oddly, I didn't want to go. My labs that the doctors uh, had done for seeing what the potential was for me to develop a blood clot, they're called a D-dimer lab, they were super high. They were like eight point something. And normal D-dimer labs are like below one. I think below point five, I think. It's definitely below one. So mine were super high and I was really nervous about that. And I was getting heparin shots in my stomach still, which again are those blood thinners. And I didn't really feel good about leaving and not being on a blood thinner because I knew I'd be laying around a lot. And I was, again, just really nervous about that. And I was still wearing a nasal cannula because I felt like I needed oxygen when I was ambulating. So not when I was laying in bed, but when I was walking to the bathroom from my bed, I felt like just in those few steps that I needed oxygen. And what if I needed it at home? And they didn't tell me that they were going to be sending me home with anything, like an order for that. So they let me go home, which I was already nervous about. And Ben came to pick me up. And my 17-day nightmare that should have ended in joy, like leaving and being home with my family, uh, it just kept going. Ben was still mad at me. He, What I thought was that he resented me from the fights before Christmas and was upset about missing sniper school because that in and of itself shifted some of his other career plans, which were valid that he was upset, but it manifested in a way where I was left alone and scared and I had I had already accepted death, which sounds crazy and depressing all in one and maybe a little dramatic, but I really did. I'd kind of come to peace with thinking I was going to die. And I started to feel angry and sad that I didn't die. I had actually organized all of our family photos for hours on my hard drive one night in the hospital. 
That way Ben would have them. I planned my own funeral, which is nuts, but I did. I emailed those plans to Ben with every account password that he might need if I die so you could pay the bills and have access for the kids. And I mean, I left all the details just planned out. So when I died and I thought I was going to, they were set. I tried to make everything as uncomplicated as possible. And again, I thought I was gonna die and I just wanted it to be easier on my family. And then what, I'm just home? unable to parent because of the pain and drugs and limitations and then my husband now hates me and he's sleeping downstairs and he's literally leaving me the night that I get home to go coyote hunting really like 45 minutes away and I'm all by myself I was not okay and I know I overshare on my podcast little and through social media and out loud all the time I'm an open book duh I'm writing a book which is still at a pause but that night I took to Twitter and in a long thread (laughs) kind of inspired by my drugs that I was on um, and maybe this hospital induced psychosis that I was in I told all on what I was feeling and shared way too much of my marital business and I sparked this concern from my command and his command which that actually ended up helping and I'm thankful that they started the process of checking on us and getting me to see behavioral health but it made matters worse in my marriage because now Ben was embarrassed rightfully so and on his own accord but I deleted that that tweet thread I got the help I felt bad that I had shared so much about our lives and at the end of the day it was a cry for help and I got the help that I needed like my friend my friend and second runner-up for Miss Veteran America 2021 Heather who was a guest on an episode I released after semi-finals time frame just for reference if you want to go check that one out um she was a guest on that episode, but she drove eight hours the next day to stay with me. That's what friends do. And I have a lot of amazing friends and I know logistically we can't always help the way that we want to, but Heather was in a position that she could. And so she did and much appreciated. She stayed the next couple of days at my house with me, just making sure I was okay and, and waited until my crazy started to go down. And I felt much better within about three days. It really did seem like the long hospital stay, health status, drugs, and the stress of my marriage, and just in life in general, kind of put me into psychosis. I wasn't myself, but I'm not an expert on, on, men, on behavioral health or mental health, but that's just what it seemed like to me. And a couple of days later, after Heather left, I was really starting to feel like myself again and able to get up and complete a few things around the house. Um, I even sat in the living room and instead of more of my bedroom to socialize with the kids. But I started doing this, and I noticed a new pain like a lump in my chest or more like a ball actually. That was on the 16th of January. I know because I take notes now for record of my symptoms and every day I was complaining more and more of what felt like a fist inside of my chest on the left side. And by the 19th, it was significantly worse. And here we go with TMI again, but my left breast, my left boob was double the size of my right. I do have breast implants, by the way. I've been pretty open about those. I got those in 2017 after I finished breastfeeding my daughter before my postpartum profile at work was up, so I didn't really have to worry about recovering. Um, I love them. It took a year for them to, quote, settle, and they're behind my muscle, and they take a while to look good and, and look good and more natural, I guess is what I mean. The swelling was obviously concerning, so I went to the ER that night. I should note that they were they or it was also very hard and tender to the touch and the er doctor at bach he didn't really know what to do with me but he had a ct ordered and it showed fluid around my implant so 
The report said maybe due to rupture and or infection. Great. I know if, if my implant is ruptured and we're not for sure yet, but if it's ruptured, I'll be so sad uh, again because it takes so long for them to settle. CT isn't clear enough to diagnose that only MRI. So there's still a little hope there. Um, they released me later that night and had me follow up the next day with my surgeon, Major Pierotti, who had performed the original surgeries. What he found the following day using an ultrasound was a fluid-filled pocket behind my breast implant on the left called a seroma. And seromas are common like right after breast augmentation in the healing phase, but not four years later. They're also common around chest tube sites. And I know because I had one on my left before Christmas, no big deal. It's gone now and it wasn't nearly as big as this one. It was just painful and it wasn't infected or anything at the time. It wasn't infected until actually it opened up. Um, but no wonder I felt like a fist was in there. It was about the size of a fist or bigger. He ended up doing an ultrasound guided fine needle aspiration where you stick a needle in there and you aspirate some of the fluid out and you use it as a sample for uh, testing bacteria. So he did a gram stain and he did a culture. And when he took that needle out, that fluid drained from that hole all day long, y'all, for 10 hours. I went through multiple shirts and gauze. It was gross. And I oozed even throughout the night. And eventually it stopped some point in the night because I woke up with it not draining anymore, but it was all over my sheets. Yuck. You'd think as the seroma drained and all of that came out, it would provide me with relief. And like maybe the swelling would be down and maybe it wouldn't be so painful. Um, definitely not as much pressure but it actually made it super painful and way worse as if draining it, which I can't explain, seemed to make my nerves get upset. I, I was having way more nerve pain. It was very hard to explain, but I was in a lot of pain. And the next morning, I still had a left boob the same size with no resolve. So I went back in to see Major Piorati, who did another ultrasound, and we saw the same fluid still there. I don't know if my body reproduced it or not all of it drained. I don't know. I can't explain it. But I saw it with the ultrasound and now I had a fever and my pain was, was worse. My boob was still big. And so he sent me to Vanderbilt. And this is where the nightmare continues because I drove myself to Vanderbilt ER. I waited, waited, waited. Eventually I was seen and they did another CT of their own because again, they don't trust anybody else's imaging at Vanderbilt. And what was frustrating about the CT is I read the report myself. It was ordered because of the issue that I've already discussed with you being the breast swelling. And they only wanted to talk about in this report my lungs. They were like, yeah, persistent pneumothorax and whatever. It's like, no, no shit. whoop de doo I could have told you that. They barely mentioned anything about my breast being huge and swollen. Like my breast is obviously in this picture. It's like huge. And they don't mention anything about the fluid like the other CT at Bach did. It was so weird. Um, but they admitted me anyway based off the swelling and my symptoms, and so plastic surgeons could handle my case. Their ER at the time at Vanderbilt was completely full. I mean, they had people in hallways. They didn't even have enough rooms. It was nuts. It was disgusting. It smelled really bad. All the bathrooms were gross. People were just mad, stressed. It was tense. It was loud. And to free up my room, after they decided to admit me, while I was waiting on another room, they put me in this really weird transitional unit area where beds were divided by curtains and nurses that were tasked here were likely put here for a reason because they suck. I hate to say it, but they all hated their jobs, completely unprofessional and just discussed it and, and talking about the woes at work within an earshot and how much they hated working for Vanderbilt. It was horrible. They didn't even turn in labs. Like they insisted I get up and do a urine sample, which I had already done. 
and they wanted one of their own here and they insisted I do this and it never even made it to the lab to get run. I I don't know, but it, I bet you their people didn't bring it there because they were just not not at all the best nurses. It seemed like they were there for a reason. Nobody even got food trays the next morning, which people were complaining. I was on NPO orders and this really sucked because, and I call this purgatory here. It's not funny. I laugh. I don't know what else to call it. I was starving. I hadn't eaten in like 20 hours. And now they had me still on NPO orders, which means nothing to eat or drink and or nothing by mouth, um, which means no food or drink. And there was no reason for me to be on NPO orders. I had just seen interventional radiology about the time right before lunchtime or right at lunchtime when people were starting to complain about food trays. And interventional radiology came by to have me sign a consent form because they wanted to do the same thing Major Pierotti had done, the aspiration with using the ultrasound and the fine needle, and then drain more of the fluid by putting a little, little tube in there the size of a straw. They didn't need to put me asleep for this. They would do it just like he did, using a little bit of lidocaine to numb the skin and there was really no reason to have me on NPO orders. I was not having surgery. It was an over-the-top precautionary measure that drove me bananas. So I took my monitors off and I told the nurse who was already madder than a wet hen, just having to even be there at work, crazy. I told her not to call a code on me for being missing, if she even noticed, that I was going to the cafeteria and it would be helpful if she just told me how to get there. She was so mad, and usually I don't do things like this, but I had had enough. I mean, it was, again, it was like hell in there. Plus, I was hangry. I knew I was going to be there for a while waiting for this procedure. They said I wasn't going to be getting it until later this afternoon, so I'm thinking several more hours of being hungry just to miss dinner while I'm in the, getting this procedure done and then having to, what, eat crackers that they could get from the nurse's station? No thanks. So... Anyway, she told me how to get there and I I went. I went on a lone adventure and went to the cafeteria. I got so much stuff. I got a bunch of snacks just in case it happened again. And by the time I got back 45 minutes later, or so my bed was ready, believe it or not, on the floor I was going to and interventional radiology was about ready for me. I forgot to mention uh, they had also started me in the ER on IV antibiotics, this one called vancomycin and another called cefepime, and I got that every eight hours while I was there. So I got a first dose in the ER, and then I got another one while I was in purgatory, and then uh, and then I went for my um, drain at interventional radiology, and they started the ultrasound up, all ready to go, and guess what? The fluid pocket was gone. My breast was still swollen, huge, and tender, but the fluid was gone. No difference. It was hard and tender again. There was no fluid to test. There was no fluid to drain, which is so bizarre because Major Pierotti saw it just the day before, even though a bunch had, you know, oozed out. We both saw it on ultrasound. If that wasn't a fluid pocket, I don't know what that was because we saw the implant and then we saw the fluid pocket and it had a thing in between. I can't explain it. Anyway, I'm not an ultrasound tech, but there was nothing for me to do. So they just sent me to my room to see plastic surgery. This was on a Saturday for reference, and the surgeon on call, he didn't even want to do an exam before he was ready to send me home, which I resisted because I had just got up to my room, and within an hour, I'm being handed a phone from the nurse where he's on the other line going, hi, how do you feel about getting out of here tonight? And I'm like, uh, what? You haven't even seen me. I just went through all of this effort because Major Pierotti sent me here to see y'all because my boob is twice the size of the other and it hurts and it's tender and I just had major chest surgery so something is wrong and you're ready to send me home? 
So again, I resisted and, you know, I don't know if he had big Saturday night plans or what, but he was pretty mad when he had to come in and do an exam at about eight o'clock that night. And he ended up keeping me overnight, at least just to monitor me and continue doing the infusions of antibiotics. And the next morning, he was definitely ready for me to get gone. Even though he was ready for me to get gone, I asked him if he would please call the lab at Blanchfield and at least ask if they had my culture report ready from when the doctor there had aspirated and sent off a lab for testing. Luckily, it was ready. And even though he's aggravated at me, he did it. And I don't know what it is about doing your job that must have been rough for some of these people at Vanderbilt this weekend, but dang, he called and wouldn't you know, staph infection. He did end up discharging me that day later that afternoon after I could get some more um, IV antibiotics, but he discharged me with oral antibiotics, which I am now on for at least another four days, and it should clear up the infection and prevent the seroma from returning, but the swelling and tenderness and hardness of my breasts, who knows how long that will take to resolve. Now that I'm out of the hospital again, I have a million appointments, pulmonology, I have to see them to find out why my lungs keep leaking air and to investigate what they believe to be constrictive bronchiolitis. And I want to know more about what they've learned from testing my lung tissue and those gelatinous nodules. What about those? I know I don't have the endometrial implants. I was cleared for that. But um, I also have follow-ups with EBH, which is embedded behavioral health. For those of you not in the military, that's um, like where we go for all of our mental health concerns, which is good because I need to take care of my mental health. And I'll also see plastic surgery about my implant and the seroma and make sure I don't have what they call a breast implant associated anaplastic large cell lymphoma. Whew, that was a mouthful. This is a type of cancer that usually presents with that late seroma formation I was talking about, meaning not right after placement, but years later. It's probably not that, but they are going to check and then make sure also that my implant is not ruptured. And if my implant is ruptured as a result of that jackass nurse at VOC who shoved my dislodged chest tube in, TRICARE better cover the whole replacement, am I right? On top of all of those follow-ups, I also had a follow-up with my primary care provider. Sometime before I started dealing with a staph infection and swollen breast tissue, um, but to talk about, you know, how long my con leave would be, and then I got all that signed, but then more importantly, what my future looks like in the military. And obviously I knew a med board was going to happen. I mean, I talk about that in this episode and last episode, the whole time I knew this could cause a medical board. Um, that's why I didn't get my pneumothorax from 2019 checked out until after it was healing. And that's why I was a little apprehensive about being seen this time because I knew it would snowball into a, this whole thing. Well, I didn't know it'd snowball into this whole, whole thing, but I knew there would be consequences with me going in terms of, of getting to stay in the army. And what it first looked like, some hope after the pleurodesis on both sides in early December, because it looked like this would prevent this from being a big deal in the future, is now looking like since they had to repeat this and take out my pleura, and now I had to have the COVID, and then I had the mental health collapse, and then now I had the infection, and then the breast implant issue. How could they not med board me? Or medical retirement, at least, I mean, I think you have to have six or seven years to medically retire, and I have well, I'll be at nine years just next month. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking at facing separation. It's not completely 
set in stone yet. Nothing has been started about it, but I'm supposed to follow up here in a couple of weeks with my primary care provider again, where we're actually going to talk about it. And of course, I have to see pulmonology to see if, uh, if this is a really bad issue with my lungs. So I don't really know how I feel about it. I know it's probably the best thing for my health to separate, at least based on how I'm feeling right now. But people have gone through crazier stories than mine, believe it or not, and they're still out there doing their military service and doing great things and going to crazy schools and doing a lot of physical things. And I, and not everything about the military, yes, it, there is definitely a huge physical aspect, but not everything in the military um, requires you to be this this stud. And there are things that I can do in the meantime where I can do a job and you know earn my paycheck, so to speak. But a medical board is not a short process by any means. And on average, it's about nine months. So this time next year, I could still be dealing with this if that's what they decide to do. I could still be arguing about my ratings or I don't know, whatever, about what the outcome is going to be. Um, and I'm a little anxious about all that, especially since I don't know what's going on in, in my personal life necessarily. But I know that whatever card I'm dealt, it's going to be for a reason. And I have a purpose here and that I will not stop advocating for people using their voice or helping out veterans or just trying to empower people to take up space and talking about military sexual trauma, talking about homeless veterans. And I'm still going to be here doing podcasting, hopefully, as long as you guys keep listening. Anyway, that's all I've got on that. that that's the update on the whether I'm going to be staying in the military and what my future might look like that I have for now. Who knows what season two will bring? This time I have to say, I really am trying to truly convalesce and not do too much. That way everything goes well and my healing goes well and I can avoid getting back in the hospital. I just wanna get my health on track. What I've been reminded of in the aftermath of this experience, well, maybe not the aftermath quite yet, but the experience nevertheless, is that tribulations and adversity in our lives truly does bring persistence. It drives it. It's sink or swim. And if you are going to swim, you have to persist and you have to be determined. And it really trains mental toughness. I can assure you all that today I am not feeling angry that I didn't die. I am positive about my future and I am only angry that I am not at 100% yet. And I'm a little anxious that I will never be at 100% again. I might have a new 100% and what used to be you know, my high would is it's going to be 90 now, but that will be my new new. I'll be the new me. But I am motivated either way. And that's how I'm able to tell the story and end this finale. And I know this was a long one. I mean, it took two episodes and this has been over an hour already just to tell the story. But I've been through a lot and I have to remind myself that because sometimes I brush off people who tell me to stay still and recover because I forget how much I really have gone through. I know there is a reason for it. If anything, it's good content for a chapter or two in my book once I start writing that. Okay, maybe three chapters. This is really long, which I'm still planning to have finished by my 30th birthday, my my book that is. But adversity in life, it comes and goes. We all have it. We all are met with unforeseen obstacles and we go through hard times, whether big or small. When we overcome them, Regardless, we are building up resiliency each time, and I am proud to still coach it and talk about it here on this podcast, even when there are days I need to be reminded of it myself. 
Life is so worth it and I hope any of you dealing with something hard in life, reach out in any way you have to in order to get help. Like I did on Twitter, I overshared. No regrets because I did get help. Also, don't do drugs. They're not, they're not worth it. Prescribed or not, don't overdo the alcohol either. Don't mix them with drugs. With that said, this ends the first season of As Told by TA. I'm proud to be your host, Taylor Ann, and share my truths with all of you. And I hope someone can use my story to grow from something they're going through. If you liked part two today, or season one for that matter, please consider letting me know by liking, following, leaving me a review, whatever it is that you can do. I would love your feedback. As Told by TA is also on Instagram, and I promise not to overpost. Following my page simply helps put you with the information and give you updates every time a new episode is released. Subscribing and following my page will also let you know when season two will start, which you're not gonna wanna miss, even though I don't know what the heck is gonna happen in season two or when it's gonna start, but you're definitely gonna wanna know when it happens. You can also find pictures related to my story that I told in this episode or part one on my Instagram page as well. Just search at as told by TA and look for the cover art. Every like helps facilitate my healing. Science says, okay, that's a lie, but I do like it when you like it. Until next season, I'm Taylor Ann and thanks for listening to my story.